Hello world and welcome to Choices, Books and Gifts, where you always have choices. Today's guest I'm proud to present is Dr. Connie Quinn. Hi, doctor. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And please, please call me Connie. Oh, thank you. I shall. I shall. So I'm going to read a little bio on, 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 on Connie and we'll go mm -hmm. from there. All right. Great. Dr. Quinn is an expert in anxiety, depression, substance abuse, sexual health, and eating disorders. She also practices LGBTQIA, aware and friendly therapy. She is also a certified sex therapist, which that's what Connie will be speaking to us about today. So Connie, I'm going to just jump right in and, and ask some questions and I'll let you take the show from there. All right. Uh, that, that would be great. First of all, what is sex addiction? What defines it? That's a great and uh, it's a great first question. I feel like the field of sex addiction has gone through so many iterations of understanding what it really means. I sort of practice through the lens of it's an addiction if it is impairing your social, health, personal, professional, daily functioning. It's an addiction if it's an addiction for you. Many folks come into treatment at any level of care, into a therapy session or therapy practice and say, I'm an addict. And I'm, and I sometimes mostly say, says who? Yeah. Well, my wife, my partner. And I'm like, okay, well then sort of let's peel back the layers there. You know, there are camps of providers in the world of sexual health that feel very much that addiction is sort of a label. And then there are other providers that want to look at it through a trauma lens and other providers that look at this through a more cognitive behavioral, uh, you have free will to make changes and choices around your behaviors. Got it, so got it. It's a little early to be talking about sex in such great detail. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm gonna gotta rev up here. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, it sounds like, like a lot of 12-step programs where if it impedes on your life, it's a problem. And uh, yeah. I wanted to roll into is, is, is sex addiction a physical addiction? That's sort of saying, you know, what's the basis of rape, which is a little heavy, but it can be rooted in physical sensation. It can be rooted in a trauma response. It can be rooted in an attachment response. Um, I think it's multi-causal. And how did you get involved with it, if you don't mind me asking? Why? Oh, Who, this, why? Is, this is a great story. So I graduated from Adelphi School of Social Work in 1996 and did an internship at a non-secure detention in Rhinebeck, New York. I worked there for about a year. I was grateful to have a job. And then a friend of mine said, New York State is hiring. You should apply. I got through and they said, well, you can work with substance abusers or you can work with sex offenders. 
And I thought, my dad is an alcoholic. I don't want to work with substance abusers. Right, I'm like, right. I'll work with sex offenders. I didn't know jack nothing about sex offender treatment, but I got a really good state job. So then I became very immersed in in the social control element of sex offender treatment at the juvenile detention level and spent about, oh my gosh, I guess about eight years working at the limited secure and the secure level with sex offenders uh, as a treatment provider. Worked with uh, only exclusively young adult men who were doing extensive sentences, many of them life um, for very violent crimes of a sexual nature. That's how I got into it. It gets a little much after a period of time. It's many people make pivots when you start working in the area of sexual compulsivity and violence and so on. So after about nine or 10 years, I said, I can talk about sex. It's something I'm fluent in. I want to make a pivot and, and help people uh, derive more pleasure, uh, work through certain sexual challenges, and bring more awareness to sexual health issues. So that's sort of the story. It was, uh, you know, nice, nice girl from Long Island working, winding up about in the in the field of sex. It's like my parents are very proud. <laughs> I'm sure they are today. That I don't doubt. Is is, is sexual addiction? related to trauma or how does that all work? Trauma and sexual. I mean, I think there is a very strong relationship between traumatic events and a whole host of challenging behaviors, sexual compulsivity, sexual behaviors being one of them. You know, you look at the ACEs study, the adverse sexual, uh, the adverse childhood events study done by Kaiser in California and, you know, health outcomes when there are adverse childhood events, you know, AKA traumatic events can present very differently. And it's just really how you choose to act it out. Um, you could be promiscuous. You could engage in chronic, uh, compulsive masturbation as a, as a, a way of self-soothing you can um, be more antisocial in those behaviors. You can act out with food. You can act out with spending. So it, it really depends, but I, there is a very significant relationship between trauma of some sort, as you define it. You know, that was traumatic for me and an addictive behavior. So is that, is, is sexual compulsivity a main or does it lead into other like usually if you have sex addiction do you have alcoholism as you said food acting out in other ways or can it be standalone uh, you know i think that it certainly can be you know standalone but i think that this stuff gets very blurry it's not it's not monocausal and it's, you know, certainly in the area of 12 step, you know, somebody stops drinking and drugging, but check their Amazon cart, it, they're, the shopping, unless you really sort of address the underlying right. issues, right. this stuff oozes out. And that doesn't make you a bad person, makes you 
supremely human, but you know, the, these things hang together. Okay. So there's, there's some theories. Are women more attracted to the love and men are more addicted <laughs> to the sex? Like, how does that work? Is there a difference between men and women in that? I think the popular answer is women are, are more attuned emotionally and socialized to be more emotional or those that identify as women and those that identify as men are, are, are not, you know, sort of right brain, left brain kind of uh, reductionist way of looking at it. I think if you did a survey, you'd probably be right that, you know, women are more attuned to the emotional aspects of a relationship. Yeah. <laughs> well, what? you know, I, I mean, I think if you took a survey, you would probably find, you know, what you're sort of hypothesizing is, you know, men are, um, men are more visual, you know, driven by different impulses than those that identify as men, those that identify as women and non-binary. You know, I think so much of it is how we're socialized too, you know, and, and not to be reductionist, but I think, you know, women are still very much socialized to, you know, behave in a certain way while women aren't drawn to sexual behaviors and aren't interested in being provocative and sexually satisfied. You know, I do think that it is sort of takes place, you know, more in the, the area of the emotional life of a relationship than, you know, sort of more driven, more sexually. And if you really look at theories of sexual, uh, sexual cycles, men, their first response is a physical response. Men yeah. start from a place of arousal. Women start from a place of desire. Emotion. Yeah. So, so that's sort of, you know, that's the low hanging fruit way to look at it. You know, everyone's a little different, but, but yeah, I think if you went into a love addicts meeting, probably find more women than if you go into a compulsive behavior disorder, uh, you know, sex addiction meeting, you're probably going to have potentially more men. Is there, is, is there any shame uh, uh, around this? Is more shameful than the other programs? You know, shame is such a subjective, qualitative experience. You know, guilt, I did a bad thing. Shame, I am a bad person. So anyone that's dealing with compulsive, addictive behavior that is really? sanctioned to be outside the the norm, whatever the hell that is, yeah. um, comes with a tremendous amount of shame. So, yeah, I, I can't say that. I mean, having worked in the area of eating disorders... Um, the shame around restriction, binging, purging, you know, through the roof. So, I mean, I, I, it, it's, a, a, it's a very personal experience, your relationship with shame. I hear you. And I, I, I would imagine, my guess is that it would prevent us sometime, the shame to, you know, oh. reach out and get some help. Mm -hmm. yeah, it really prevents people from being able to go into treatment fully 
disclose things in treatment, prohibits experiences, prohibits being present. I remember when uh, when I decided to, to get some help for myself, I had owned a restaurant in the area where, where uh, I was acting out. And when it was suggested to, to, you know, go to a meeting, I thought, oh, my God, there's so much shame, I'm sure. So I walked in and like, yes, there were 12 customers I knew there. And they <laughs> walked me and hugged me and said, you know, we were waiting for you. Right. We had a chair for you. So it's amazing how I wish there was a different dynamic around shame where we didn't have it as much and, and we could move past it and, and, and get the help we need. Because I do think it kills a lot of people's shame. I do. One of the one of the books that I have found to be pretty profound around shame, and I really didn't pick it up specifically for this, was Brene Brown's Men, Women, and Worthiness. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like she's re, she's with you in a therapy session. So I highly recommend that for because she she admits food addiction, substance use addiction, you know many years in recovery. So I, I highly recommend that book. Excellent. Excellent. I will take all your recommendations. I <laughs> well, someone with a, a sex addiction and, and I don't know, I guess to me, it's sort of like food. Well, you, you, you can abstain completely, but can, num, uh, can a person who's has a sex addiction eventually with work and whatnot live a normal life? Well, you know, that's a, it's, it's a great journey to go on as a provider, as a therapist with somebody who's coming from a place where they use sex as sort of a weapon, um, you know, weapon said with love, you know, sort of that acting out mechanism, um, because you feel like that that is the best tool you have in your toolbox is to hook somebody with sex or lead with sex because you're not feeling good enough about anything else that you have available to you to go from, from that place to move toward a space of owning your sexuality, feeling good about everything that props up your so sexuality. Get, can we get there? Absolutely. People That's get there okay. all the time. Okay. Like anything, it requires a tremendous amount of work. And, you know, There's every time every time you start the work, you're one step closer. Okay. To meeting your goal. And your goals could be very small to start. I always sort of talk about recovery or you know moving toward healing as you you're creating a quilt. And like the 12 step you know, each step is a is a square of a quilt, and then you start to sew the the squares together, and all of a sudden you're able to be a little bit more warm. Um, but yeah, absolutely, people can get there. I mean, look, we know that there are folks out there that are acting out in deeply pathological ways, and I think that's a totally separate category of individuals because I don't care who you love, how you love, what you do, king, BDSM, you know, it, it must be with consent and it cannot be against, uh, cannot be breaking the law. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, you know, that's something that we put over here and that there's a very different 
sort of mandatory treatment reserved for folks that are engaged in that behavior. But for folks that have not broken the law, but have uh, compulsivity um, and addictive quality to the way that they act out their sexual uh, relations, I feel that healing is possible, but it, it's going to require way, mechanisms in which you can stop the acting out, engage in the treatment of anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, and trauma, potentially stop the substance use that disinhibits you and allows you to act out in other ways. So it, it, it is probably more common than not that the sex, sexual acting out behaviors hang with some substance stuff, some trauma, and, and so on. Yeah, I, 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 I understand that and I agree with it. I think that, you know, when you have one thing, you can have others. And, and what you said earlier on about unless you deal with the core, the core, other things will will come up. You, you need to really dig down deep, get to the root of it. And, and, and you, some people are not ready to do that right away. I agree. You know, we have to put some band-aids on and, you know, somebody might start out in a 12-step program for community, for the all in the same boat, you know, um, phenomenon, you know, as, as uh, Gallum, a major, you know, group uh, theorist and uh, sort of the god of of psychotherapy, one of the gods of psychotherapy. You know, there's lots of therapists out there that tell people who have experienced trauma, you, so you, and then you might find a therapist. And that therapist tells you, oh, well, you know, trauma, we've got to get you back in your body when your body is not the safest place for you. So then you sort of backslide a little bit and you start using your body and it's sort of causes a little bit more acting out. And then you need to find some some more safe places so it it is a journey it's definitely a journey. Sure. so let me ask you this what's what's the process how do i start what do i do it's relationship building you know you would come in or you know we would these days we would zoom and i would do a full assessment like i would do a full assessment on anybody you know going through you know sort of your current level of functioning, family history, social. I would do a, you know, a full assessment. So it's not so you know, cut and dry. It's not cut and dry. It's very nuanced. And I think in private practice, we treat the addictive behavior as just one of the variables that the patient brings to the table. For me, I'm very protective of people's anonymity and their privacy. If you were to go into an intensive outpatient program or a partial hospitalization program, residential or inpatient, we would have to really work on the diagnostic categories to make sure that your insurance would cover it. I, I, I want to make sure that people continue, have continued treatment and very often certain things are covered more easily than others. Thank you, thank you. You know, I've heard a few different things and I'm, I'm not sure, maybe you'll clear it up for us. So say you're in a specific program and you're, you're sexting, is that considered a slip? 
if you if you were in a 12 step program, you know, if you're looking at the abstinence of the behaviors that drove you to the program, um, whether it say abstinent, can it ever be in the norm, the sexting and the pornography? If if what drove you into a treatment program is compulsive sexting, compulsive porn, then sure, if you're looking at it through a 12-step model, a slip is absolutely using what? those behave using those behaviors. Um if you were working with me and you know somebody reported, yeah, you know, I'm I'm on some dating sites and you know, in order to make sure that somebody asks me out on a date, my sex, my text messages get a little provocative, sort of yeah. I lead with. Is that a slip? Not in my world. Is that like, hmm, let's, let's unpack that. Let's take a look at why do you feel like you need to make that leap? How do you feel about what you bring to the table? Right. And why aren't you sure that someone might ask you out and if they don't that really doesn't have anything to do with you agreed that's yeah. them you know you, they're just not that into you and we all have something we have to keep in our back pocket to keep us humble to keep us aware if mary feels like I know that it's very easy for me to lead with sex because it's always been successful in the past, but I want to break the pattern. Okay, Mary, put that statement in your back pocket and pay attention. Okay. Uh, um, but if, if this person starts sexting their supervisor and lost their job mm. and they or put on administrative leave and commit to go into it, and they are sexting, that's a slip. I, I, I do understand that. So we're going to be wrapping things up soon, but say someone, you know, comes in and is listening to this cast and they, uh, they're not sure. What, what, what can we tell the person who's on the fence about mm -hmm. getting some help? It's great to start out with a trained sexual health professional. Okay. And that doesn't mean that they have to be a sex addiction specialist, just somebody that has really good credentials that creates a sex positive environment, can do a really good assessment and work with that patient. Um, I think the climate today around finding a therapist is really, really challenging. People mm -hmm. want to use their insurance. Not everybody has insurance. It's cost prohibitive at times. I feel like, you know, as somebody that's been in the field for a million years and have taught at Columbia and Adelphi, and we churn out a lot of therapists. Not everyone is really cut out to do this work. And you have to really be a very careful consumer. And, and you know, I, 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 I just, I need to say that because, you know, sometimes the therapeutic environment can cause more harm. Yeah, yeah. 
I always say to, to, to people that, that, that ask me for that type of advice is, you know, interview them, come in with a set of questions and, you know, feel confident that the person speaking to you mm-hmm. can help and will help. So with that, first, I want to thank you so much, Connie. Oh, this is my pleasure. Absolutely. I feel so akin to the background and I could go over to my, I could go over to my dish of, of crystals and half of them probably came from your store. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. So I like to close with a closing statement. So as we wrap up this episode of choices, remember that life is a series of decisions that shape our journey. I hope our time together was inspiring and motivating. Stay empowered, stay well, and remember, you always have choices. Peace and blessings, and we hope to see you next week. Excellent. Namaste. Namaste. (laughs) Ciao. Thank you so much. You're welcome.